Welcome to Gateway's podcast. We hope God speaks to you through this message from Pastor Don Brock. For more information about Gateway, please visit www.gatewaybc.com. Well, happy Father's Day. I'm glad you're here today. You know, we were going to have bacon just for the fathers, but we were concerned about how many of them would get mugged in the parking lot by their wives and their kids. So we made it bacon for everybody. So be sure to get your bacon as you're leaving. And uh, if you've already had some, you can still get some more. If, if there's still some out there, we'd love for you to uh, share in that. And uh, so we hope you have a great Father's Day. <laughs> right before I was walking in, my son calls me. I'm sitting there going, he knows I'm a preacher, right? And uh, I work on Sunday mornings. But he was in New Mexico. He's doing concerts out there. And I think he forgot the time difference. But uh, it was good to hear, him, hear from him just for a few moments. And we'll catch up with him later. Well, we're in our series uh, in the book of Acts. We're going to be doing that this summer. And today we're going to actually be listening to the very first sermon ever preached uh, after Jesus rose from the dead and went back to heaven. And one of the things that have has always puzzled historians is why Christianity spread so fast in its early days. Cause it, I mean, it spread quickly. Uh, and because the groups, the group of people that Jesus left behind was a relatively small group and they were not people of influence. I mean, they were just fishermen and carpenters and just ordinary people like you and me and and, um, you know, Christianity didn't advance through conquest. You know, it was like 400 years before anyone ever picked up a sword to defend Christianity. And uh, it, it didn't make its uh, followers rich. In fact, it usually led to them losing their homes and losing their fortunes if they had any. Um, and it produced communities unlike the world had ever seen. The communities were very peaceable. Um, there, there were lots of per persecuted religious groups in those days. A lot of different religious groups were being persecuted, but only the Christians, were the, they were the only ones of all those religious groups that refused to fight back. And they were actually praying for, for forgiveness for those who were persecuting them. Uh, and they were joyful. This is crazy. They were joyful about their executions. So the world had never seen anything like this. They welcomed the outcast. They were actually the first multiracial community on the planet. I mean, when Paul planted his churches, he could have saved himself a lot of aggravation and a lot of struggles if he had simply said, okay, we're going to put first Gentile church on this side of town, first Jewish church on this side of town, but he didn't do that. He brought them together. I mean, he planted multiracial churches and they struggled with their differences. They struggled with their traditions, especially the Jews but he did it intentionally anyway. And so the Christian church 2,000 years ago was the first multiracial community. They had rich and poor together in one church. They had 
slave owners and servants, masters and servants. They had men and women. I mean, they were a church for everybody. And they were a generous church. What little they had, they would give it away. So where did all that come from? Uh, there's a professor from Yale, Jenna, uh, Kenneth Scott uh, Larrett. And, and listen, listen to some of the words he said. He says, the more one examines the various factors which seem to account for the extraordinary victory of Christianity, the more one is driven to search for a cause underlying them all. It is clear that at the very beginning of Christianity, there must have occurred a vast release of energy, virtually unparalleled in history. Well, he got that right. Nothing else could explain the surge of the early Christian movement. So what caused this release of energy? It lies outside the realm in which modern historians are supposed to move. In other words, he's saying, you know, if we go by standard historian, uh, historical uh, precepts of how we examine history, to try to explain that first church, you have to move outside of those parameters. That's what he said. Then he said, but before I am a historian, I am a human. How can I close my eyes to the obvious explanation that something supernatural happened? I mean, basically, he stood back as a professor and an historian. He set all his rules aside. He said, something supernatural happened. That's the only way you can explain it. So I want us to look at what that was. The very first message preached after Jesus that released all of that energy. Now the apostles and the first band of disciples, they had been hiding out together in the upper room when a mighty tornado-like wind hit the room. And then there were these cloves of fire that sat upon each of their heads. And then they went outside into the crowded marketplace and temple where there was a huge crowd from all over, literally all over the world because they knew all these languages. They, they, they had every spoken language there. And, and these uneducated guys came out and they began proclaiming the glory of God in languages unknown to them, but known to the people that were there. I mean, there were people that from there, from everywhere, and they said, wait a minute, I, I know what you're saying. You're talking in my native language. How can you do that? I, I mean, it, there was no explanation other than something supernatural. It, it would be like the equivalent of me all of a sudden right now just breaking out into fluent, flawless Mandarin, one of the hardest languages to learn. Well, that would have to be a supernatural event. Peter stands up and he explains this multi-language miracle and that it was a fulfillment of God's promise to send the Holy Spirit. There's the supernatural. Supernatural. 
that it was a sign that God wanted the gospel preached in all languages to all nations. That's what was happening. So with that in mind, we're going to start with Acts chapter 2. We're going to start reading in verse 22. So if you've got your Bibles or your app, just open it up. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. We're going to go ahead and read this whole section. And then we're going to come back and talk about it as we always do. And see what God wants us to learn from this. He says, this is Peter talking. Luke is writing this down. People of Israel, listen, God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. I mean, everybody had heard about Jesus. A lot of people there probably actually saw some of those miracles, and maybe some of them actually received some of those miracles, but everybody heard about those. You don't raise somebody from the dead like Lazarus, Jesus, when he raised Lazarus, and word not get around. I mean, word got around. He says, but God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan, never forget, God is always in control. Always. His prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. And with the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross. And you killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life. So get that phrase, horrors of death. Anybody who's not a believer, that's what's awaiting them. Notice it's saying death is not final. There's horrors, meaning continual action, a real action. There's horrors of death. And raised him back to life, for death could not keep in his, uh, could not keep him in its grip. King David said this about him. I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad. You need to get to that place that you can speak like David. The Lord is always with me. I don't have to worry about anything. God's got this. I don't have to live in fear. I don't have to fret and worry. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praise. My body rests in hope. For you will not leave my soul among the dead and allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life and you will fill me with the joy of your presence. That's what David was saying. And you can say that as well. Now, Peter starts talking again from his words. Dear brothers, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself for he died and was buried and his tomb is still here among us. I've been to that tomb. If you've been to Israel with me, you've probably been to that tomb as well. 
you can still go there and see it. But he was a prophet and he knew God had promised with an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne. David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. And praise God, that's the same promise he's given to you. God raised Jesus from the dead and we are all witness of this. And now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us. So there's the supernatural power right there. Just as you see and hear today, for David himself never ascended into heaven, yet he said, the Lord said, to my, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, and here it comes, whom you crucified to be both Lord and Messiah. Now, it says Peter's words cut or pierced their hearts like a dagger going into their chest. And they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time. There's my biblical privilege. Every Sunday, just preach and preach and preach. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. Supernatural. Now, when Peter said it, that they were pierced or cut to the heart just as the knife entered into their chest. Jesus had promised in John 16, 8, that when the spirit came, he would convict the world of sin. And convict in the Greek means to cross-examine, to press you with evidence against you until your inconsistencies and your lies are exposed and, and you're trying to divert the conversation is exposed and, and you know, kind of the Holy Spirit just keeps going at you to show you the truth. That's what the Spirit does. You see, I, I cannot convict anybody of any sin I can tell you what the scripture says, 
But when I share scripture with you or as you read scripture and you feel conviction, it's not for me or it's not even from you reading scripture. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart through the scripture. He convicts. So you have two questions. What was it that pierced their heart? What was that? And what did they do in response? Because in the essence of those two questions, the answer shows us the energy that was released that started the Christian movement. So why were they cut to their heart? Well, a couple of things. First of all, they realized they were absolutely wrong about Jesus. In Jesus' day, there were lots of theories about him. And people had all kinds of things they wanted him to be. Some wanted him to be a prophet that was just calling people to come back to religion. But that's not what he was. Others wanted him to be a a political Messiah and, and delivering them from the oppression and the overturning of corrupt Roman Empire. And others kind of wrote off Jesus as just a fake, a charlatan, a magician, a strange charismatic person who had power over people. But Jesus refused to conform to anyone's expectations. He claimed to be God. He demanded lordship. He forgave people's sins which the religious people considered that blasphemy because only God can forgive sin. And yet Jesus forgave sin all the time. He let people worship him. In fact, he went on to say, if you didn't worship me, even the rocks and the trees would cry out in worship of me. He claimed to be on a rescue mission to save people And that he was the only way to be saved. That's who Jesus was. And the people were like, Jesus, we like you, but you got to be quiet about this God stuff. You got to tone that down or they're going to crucify you. Peter said that in the resurrection, however, God overturned their opinions and, Je- and declared Jesus to be who he was. You see, Lord means God. So he was not another religious prophet. He was God, creator of the universe. That's what Lord means. And Christ, that means only savior. He was not one way of many. He was the only way under heaven by which a person can be saved. And so today, just like they did back then, many of us today want Jesus to be something other than who he is. Some of us want him to be a great religious teacher. And we just want to use his words to give feel-good religious comments. Others want him to be the backbone of our Western morality or whatever we think that is. Many want him to be just one of many ways to get to God because they've got friends that 
are good, good people, but they're not Christ followers and they don't want to believe that they will die and go to hell. So they, in their mind, begin to think, well, maybe Jesus is just one way and they're actually following Jesus just by a different name. But Jesus would not let himself be regulated to that. And that's why they killed him. You know, some of us want Jesus to answer all our political problems. I listened to a message this past week when I was at the Southern Baptist Convention in Nashville and a pastor said, when the church gets in bed with politics, the offspring does not look like Jesus. So they killed him. But God resurrected him. And if God resurrected Jesus, then what you and I think about him is far less important than who he says he is. What you think about who Jesus is means nothing compared to what God says who Jesus is. So my question to you is, have you opened yourself up to who Jesus has presented himself to be. Now keep in mind, when Peter preached this sermon, it only had been two months since the crucifixion. And they were in the very city where Jesus had been crucified. And here are 3,000 people now, instead of saying, Oh, no, no, I can take you to the tomb of Jesus. It's right down the road here. Let's go over there and I can show you where his body is. Well, they didn't do that because everybody knew the body was not there. I would imagine there had been a long line for weeks, if not months, to see that empty tomb. Even today, people stand in line to see an empty tomb. Paul says, that, or Paul says that over 500 people saw Jesus at the same time. And most of those people were still alive at the writing of this sermon. So they weren't hallucinating. In fact, most likely, these apostles each died a martyr's death, proclaiming to the end that Jesus was alive. Why would they do that if it was a lie? So this made them conclude we had wanted Jesus to be one thing, but Jesus was something else. And his re resurrection declares him to be something else. So again, I ask you, have you opened yourself to whom Jesus has presented himself to be? Lord, and Messiah as Savior, as the only way. So they were cut to the heart because they realized they had been wrong about Jesus. They were also cut to the heart because they realized they were responsible for his death. And Peter points to the crowd and says, you killed him. Now, over the years, some people have used that, that phrase, that verse, 
to satisfy or justify their anti-Semitic opinions. You totally misunderstand the Greek and the writings of these words if that's the conclusion you come to. It would not have been misunderstood that way back then. You see, Peter was saying, you killed him. He was speaking globally based on the words that he used. So he was talking about all of us and he was even talking about himself. See, not everyone there had been directly involved in Jesus's crucifixion. Some of those people probably had arrived after that. It's two months later, but he's looking at all of them and he's looking to the whole world and he says, you killed him and I can look to you and I can look to me and say, we killed him. Our sins put him on that cross. So this wasn't about a particular group of Jews in Jerusalem. This is about all people, you and me. And so when Peter says, you killed him, he was also speaking personally. On the night that Jesus was crucified, as foretold by Jesus, Peter denied Christ three times. And the Bible records Luke's gospel that at that third denial, at that very moment, the rooster crowed three times and the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And in Luke chapter 22, when Jesus turned and looked at him, Peter saw the face, this man preaching this very first gospel sermon, when he saw the face of Jesus, he didn't see a man who just came out of the beauty parlor. He saw a man whose face was purple, swollen, bloodied, spit dripping down from his face. A face that had been battered. A crown of thorns that had been stuck into his forehead. Blood dripping down. That's what he saw. And Peter realized in that moment that Jesus had been beaten because of his betrayal. And Luke says that Peter was cut to the heart and he went out and wept bitterly, which meant he could not be consoled. Nobody could put their arms around him and tell him that he would be okay and it would get better. He was cut to the heart. So Peter was saying, I killed Jesus. Peter realized at that moment that Jesus had been beaten for his betrayal. Those who were listening to Peter came to the exact same conclusion. We did this. Jesus died for my sins. He was wounded for my transgressions. And when you're cut to the heart, when you realize that it was your sin that did this, then you're getting to the place you need to be. It was your cheating, your lies, your unfaithfulness. It was your gossip. It was your backstabbing. It was your cheating that killed Jesus. It was your selfishness, your pride, your hatred, your bigotry that killed Jesus. And before you are pierced, you think of your sin as breaking God's rules. 
But after you've been cut through, you realize you were breaking God's heart. Has this realization happened to you? Have you ever had that firsthand personal experience with God? You know, you cannot come to God on the faith of your parents, faith of your grandparents. It's not going to happen. It doesn't work that way. You have to come to that place where you realize that it was your sins, it was my sins that put Jesus on the cross and that I need to be forgiven. So what do I do with that? Well, here's what they did. They sought for forgiveness from the cross. Peter said in verse 38, come be baptized as a symbol that you're claiming Christ's death as your forgiveness. You see now, this is a little ironic. The cross of Christ is where they murdered him, where we murdered him, but it is at that same place we find forgiveness. So at the place where I caused Jesus' death, it's at that same place I find forgiveness. And the great irony of the cross is that God used our most heinous crime against him as a means of our salvation. On the cross, Jesus paid that penalty. Isaiah 53 says, he was wounded for our transgressions. Two things that we see in the cross. We see that it was my sin and your sin that did that to him on the cross. But we also see that he did it to rescue you and me. So the cross is an invitation of grace. It's an offer to you to come home. You see, it's not enough to feel the condemnation of the cross. You have to perceive and receive the goodness of God coming to you through it. Jesus resurrected from the dead saying to you, you killed me, but I was dying for you. There was a man whose son had left years ago and had disassociated himself from the family because he had just messed up way too many times. And the father posted a classified ad trying to locate his son. And the ad simply said, John, all is forgiven. Come back to me, dad. And he left a phone number. That dad received hundreds of phone calls from men named John looking for forgiveness, looking to reconcile with the family. There's just something in us that longs to be reconciled with the God who created us. So they changed their minds about God. And when Peter used that word repentance, he said, repent and be baptized. Repent in the Greek means a change of mind. It's more than just resolve to do better. It's a whole new attitude. 
You see, the entire attitude towards God has been wrong. We have resisted him as an adversary, but instead we need to see him as a loving father. We've seen him as somebody out to get us when all along he's somebody out to rescue us. And that changes your attitude, even towards sin. When you know someone loves you, it changes your heart towards them. And you have a heavenly father who has always loved you, always watched you, never given up on you, always been trying to bring you back. And then the last thing they did, they surrendered. You see, when they came to Christ, they recognized that he was Lord and that they had been rebelling against the God of creation. C.S. Lewis said it this way, we don't come to God as bad people trying to become good people. We come as rebels to lay down our arms. So you don't clean up your act and then come to God. You come to God just as you are and you lay down who you are and he accepts you just as you are, but he loves you enough not to leave you that way. It's not about becoming a better person. It's not about becoming more religious. It's about you recognizing Jesus as Lord. And so you put him in charge and you surrender to him and you receive what he has offered you. You know, on July the 25th, we're going to have baptism at the lake. Maybe that's time for you to do that. Baptism won't save you, but it reveals and shows what's happened in your heart. So I want to take a moment now as the band comes out. And if you're at home watching, you're sitting here, I just know there's some of you in here right now, you've not settled about Jesus. You just look at Jesus as a good guy. But you've not settled with Jesus as Savior, as Lord. And, and I, I want to pray with you right now. Maybe as God's word has been preached to you, you felt that knife stuck into your chest and it pierced your heart. And, and maybe you realize my sins were sufficient to send Jesus to the cross. And he, he rescued me. What am I going to do about that? What are you going to do about that? I, I want to pray with you. So let's, let's pray.